Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. Afternoon, church. We're going to read from God's Word now. So we're reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 12, and we'll read to chapter 2, verse 13. And as usual, I'll give you a minute to find your way there. Okay, let's read. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you, with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely, just as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride, just as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Because of this confidence, I plan to come to you first, so that you could have a second benefit, and to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. Now, when I planned this, was I of two minds? Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I do not mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find my brother Titus, Instead, I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia.
Afternoon, everyone. Anyone lose a, an Allosaurus out the front here? No? Okay, good. Um, you got your Bibles open? You can't see it, can you? There's a dinosaur down the front here. Yeah. I don't know what you were thinking about uh, when that was being read, but it's, it's a bit complex, isn't it? And I'm hoping that uh, we'll be able to sort of demystify uh, this section of God's Word a bit and uh, tie it into uh, what we um, looked at last week and prepare us for the next couple of weeks as well. So let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, please guard and guide what I say. Please help me make this part of your Word uh, clear for people. And we pray, Lord, that uh, as your Word sinks into us, you will change us to be more like Jesus and uh, be more faithful and uh, more effective as your witnesses in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many plans for trips changed because of COVID. It'd be interesting. It'd be millions, I guess, over the world, wouldn't it? All those plans. I've heard enough stories uh, from my church family here uh, to know that... Um, Big plans had to be radically changed or cancelled before the day. And uh, maybe some of you were stranded on um, your holiday. Was anyone here stranded on your holiday? No? At the uh, 9 o'clock, there were some people stranded up in Northern uh, Territory for a while, and they actually enjoyed that. But sometimes that's not a very um, good experience. Um, for some... Uh, it might be that they were stranded while they're on holiday, some on even business trips overseas, and it had been a costly thing. Uh, but I also think about the costliness of uh, other people, especially people in nursing homes, who at that time they weren't able to uh, have visitors, and that must have been terrible. I know that we've got some brothers and sisters in uh, nursing homes, uh, our spiritual brothers and sisters who are in nursing homes, and, and they certainly, uh, I think, suffered uh, during that time as well. And uh, for different uh, people being separated, parents from children and uh, grandparents from grandchildren, and uh, even at one stage, even separated from your neighbours, who would have thought that would have ever happened? And some relationships radically changed. Some got stronger and some fizzled out. Uh, we've all had different ways of, uh, and levels of coping with it. And uh, I learned how to use Zoom, which is an amazing thing for me to actually have some, some, something electronic that I actually began to feel comfortable with. Uh, our passage, you've probably noticed, is actually about a change of plans or the change of plans of a particular trip that Paul was intending. Or at least it was the catalyst for what Paul is talking about here. So Paul tells the Corinthians, Look, I planned to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit. And I think that means that um, uh, he could spend time with them and teach them and pastor them and love them up face to face. But that wasn't to be. And he said, and 
on from there to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. whole bunch of names of places that most of us have never been. I certainly haven't. Um, it might be helpful to actually think of an hourglass, you know, the idea of um, uh, Greece, the mainland is the top part of the hourglass and then it goes into the tiny waste of the isthmus and then it comes out again and this bottom part of Greece is the Peloponnesus and in between that narrow part, that's where Corinth is. And on top of all of that, that's where Macedonia is. And Judea is way, way over there overseas. So that's what he was planning to do. But it didn't pan out that way at all. Between his last visit and his last letter, circumstances had changed. They think Paul is just being flaky and unreliable and unstable. So in verse 17, he's now sort of verbalising their cynicism when he says, now, now, when I planned this, was I of two minds? Or what I plan to do, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes and no, no at the same time? You see, some people were spreading it around that Paul, when he was saying, yes, I'm coming to you, what he's really thinking in his head is, no, probably not, because it might just be too hard. And if anything better comes along, I'll do that instead. So he's lying. And then that's where verse 18 comes in. This is his defence. Verse 18. As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. You've got to get that feeling of yes and no, saying at the same time. Maybe to one person he says yes, another person he says no about exactly the same thing. What does legitimate faithfulness look like? I think it's begun to be unpacked in, at the beginning of verse 18, where it says, as God is faithful. Let's just focus on that part. I think it's a great example of how knowing God's character is the key to understanding how Christians ought to behave, ought to act. And in this case, especially how the Apostle Paul should act. Um, there's the, uh, the example from uh, last week in chapter 1, verse 3, where we're told... Uh, God the Father is identified as the God of all comfort. And then we found, therefore, Paul shows how God's kids are to bring comfort to others. It's got that sort of an idea, the old uh, proverb of like father, like son. Or, the apple never falls far from the tree. You've heard that expression? It's a fairly old expression, but what they were basically saying, yes, in uh, Paul's case, the apple seems to have fallen fairly far away because he doesn't seem to be acting very godly at all because he's, he's vacillating, he's, he's not being consistent. He's even maybe being a bit um, uh, controlling and not saying exactly what he was actually thinking. 
What does legitimate faithfulness look like in a genuine follower of Jesus? It will look like God. As a matter of fact, it looks a lot like Jesus heading to the cross. Because that's where you see God's faithfulness in action. Jesus deciding and taking step by step, going towards an execution that was a horrible experience, but he, he knew he had to do it for us. And so he was going to do it. Nothing was going to stop him from doing it. He was committed to it. So Paul brings in the character of God by pointing to Jesus. Verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him, in God, it is always yes. And this is the great verse. I, I want to encourage you to think about this verse. Chapter 1, verse 20 of 2 Corinthians. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Now, uh, by the way, that's one of two memory verses that glow the uh, kids who meet here on a Friday are going to be learning. It's a great verse. And it's also, for those who are in growth groups and you're following the, the growth group um, studies, at the bottom of the page, it's going to be the memory verse for you as well. So it's an encouragement to um, be ahead of the kids. Try to memorise 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, and memorise it and meditate on it, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen, or right on, to the glory of God. Now, I think that uh, apart from uh, what um, Craig has uh, prepared us for in understanding 2 Corinthians last week, this actually gives us enough background to understand this passage, or at least ways get the main thrust of the passage. And I want to share with you three principles that come out of this passage that show us what legit faithfulness will look like in your life. Okay, I'm going to give the three of them now and then we're going to break them down later on. Number one. Godly faithfulness is being transparent. Two, godly faithfulness is being dependable and at the same time flexible. And three, godly faithfulness is loving. Do you think you got those stuck in your head there? Don't worry, we're going to be looking at them again and they'll be drilled in. Godly faithfulness is, number one, being transparent. Uh, verse 12, Paul says, We've conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. That expression, we've <coughs> pardon me, conducted ourselves, or as the ESV translates it, we have behaved ourselves, 
has the idea of living to a pattern of life. Now, you all know what a pattern is. A pattern is something... You you have a a single event, it's not a pattern. It's got to be repeated. It's got to be something that you identify. Ah, there's a pattern there. And it's a pattern that Paul is actually boasting about. But it's not boasting about being clever. It's about following a pattern which God has actually given him. And that's why, as Paul is boasting, he can actually do it humbly. Because he's boasting about a pattern that God has given him to follow and live by, and it's all from God. And that's why he can be sincere and have pure motives. He's referring back to the pattern. Uh, Everything that Paul needs to know is what God has given him. And that's why he can even use the word boasting in the passage that we've just read twice in a very positive way. Uh, As a matter of fact, that word boasting in all of his letters, he uses the idea of boasting. It can be in a negative sense. He uses it negatively twice. In all of his letters, he uses the word boast or boasting eight times positively. So it's overall, he's actually saying, this is a boasting that is good. So you've got the idea, as soon as I say boasting and and humbly, it's hard to put those two words together, isn't it? Well, here's an example of how you can boast humbly. As a matter of fact, we all sang it, didn't we? I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death, and resurrection. If you sang it, that's the principle that we're looking at here. Um, 2 Corinthians is actually Paul's brag book. Now, I realise as I've been preaching this particular sermon a couple of times already, that there are groups of people who don't know what a brag book is. Out of curiosity, do you know what a brag book is? Who knows? There's a few people. Out of curiosity, who owns a brag book? At the nine o'clock service, there was one. There are a few more at the eight o'clock service. I don't think there was anyone at the 11 o'clock who actually had... Who's got a phone with photos of their kids or their grandkids on it that they like showing? Yeah, that's right. There you go. Yeah, they'll show you later on, okay? (laughs) But in the olden days, a brag book was actually something that was physical. And, you know, they could take out their brag book and and it's going to be um, somewhere in your your, uh, grandparents' places, there will be brag books, okay? It actually often says Nana's brag book or something at the front. But here, 2 Corinthians is like Paul's brag book. And you... See this amazing thing. Every time that you turn a page in Paul's brag book in 2 Corinthians, you see a picture of Jesus. That's who he's bragging about. And every time there is someone else in the picture, it's in the picture with Jesus, Jesus showing them or demonstrating to them how they can live this new pattern of life. 
And it becomes a way of just reminding them all the time, everything that I do, everything that I say, it's all about Jesus. So uh, maybe at the, uh, the end of our time together, just think through, who are you going to show God's brag book, in particular, 2 Corinthians, uh, to maybe someone this week? Show them Jesus by what we are uh, talking about here. Um, in verse 12, his boast is that he can live, Paul can live, a pattern of life that is transparent or, the words that he uses, uh, uh, a godly sincerity, or the ESV has got the word simplicity. The idea is if you're focused on the one thing or the one person, life is very simple. The way of going through life and making decisions is very simple. And it's also got the sense of purity or pure motives. That's what is motivating the Apostle Paul, which actually at this point, you've got to realise, Paul identifies as a gift. The best uh, that we see of each other in the brag book when we see a picture of ourselves or someone else with Jesus, the best way that we present ourselves to others, the best times where we have shown Jesus the clearest is when Jesus, we know, has actually empowered us to be able to do that. Because remember, Jesus is on every page, even in your life, in your Christian life. There's no room in Paul's life for any secret agendas. There's no picture in the brag book of just Paul by himself. He can afford to be transparent. He can afford to be real because his whole message is about Jesus. And Paul knows that it is a gift from God. It is, as he calls it, it's a, it's a gift of grace. It's by the grace of God. And grace is unmerited, free. You can't earn it. There's no way that um, as far as God's grace goes that you can barter for it. You can't buy it. It's a gift. And that's why Paul is so able to say, my whole life, it is transparent because that's the very nature of the good news of Jesus. If he raises himself up, he actually muddies the waters as far as what the gospel is. Faithfulness is being transparent. Secondly, godly faithfulness is being, I snuck in two at the one, Di actually pointed that out that I made four points, but it's not, uh, I'm actually joining two. Godly faithfulness is being dependable and at the same time flexible. You've got to keep them together. Uh, even though that they seem to some, sometimes uh, sort of grate against each other. When Paul changes his plans, it's always keeping in mind, how can this best help people understand the good news of Jesus? Or how can this help my brothers and sisters in Christ become more like Jesus? And so in verse 16, at the moment we're in chapter 1, I'll let you know when we zip over to chapter 2. In verse 16, he shares his original plan. He said, 
I planned, and in the ESV it's got I wanted, but the idea planned actually I think captures it more. I planned to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit, that is the benefit of him being there and teaching them and pastoring them and loving them. But then something happened. If you go down to verse 23 in chapter 1, I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. We'll come back to fleshing that out a little bit in a moment. But you can see that his reason in being dependable involves him doing it on the basis of what is best for them. And he is, because of that, he has to be flexible. What could the Corinthian Christians always depend on from Paul? That he would always preach the gospel of Jesus clearly and even when it made enemies. That he would be gospel-driven in his goals and in his strategies and in his actions, even when his motives would be misunderstood by people around him. He would actually leave that up to God to be able to, he'll talk about it, he'll try to make people see, but he knows it's up to God. It's because he was consistently dependable in living in the light of the gospel that he had to be flexible. If the circumstances change so that uh, doing something in a particular way no longer had the advantage of the same gospel outcome, then to be inflexible would actually be unwise. At best, it's unwise. At worst, it's actually sinful to be stuck in a rut and not change things, even though it's what would help another person come to know Jesus. And that creates a problem for us. You see, godly dependability is based on keeping the main thing the main thing. But you are and I am creatures of habit. We're in habits, we're in ruts, uh, we get in grooves and it's difficult. We need extra energy to get out of that groove, out of that rut. That's what a habit is. Now, um, Paul wants these Christians to know you have to be flexible enough in your plans that you can change them if it's the most loving thing to do. And basically he's saying, look, I'm not going to be too concerned that some people will mistake um, what I'm doing or actually um, say something about my motivation that is wrong. I know what I'm supposed to do and I will change when necessary for the gospel. To be inflexible for the truth of the gospel is good. You can't change the message of the gospel. But to be inflexible in your general life, the way that you're doing things, it doesn't allow you to be ready to change when God changes circumstances. Here's an exercise you may find helpful. Uh, have you all got in your mind, and I'm, I'm going to look for a couple of nods, and if, if there's all vacant stares and shakings of heads, 
I might have to explain it a bit more, I don't know. You ready for it? Have you got in your head a couple of your habits? Ah, good. Okay, some. Few people still a little vacant. You haven't been able to establish what your, your habits are. I don't mean it whether they're bad or whether they're good. Just habits. Things that you routinely do. Have you got it in your head? If you do, this is what I want you to do. That's an exercise I think it'd be well worth doing. When you make the list, don't bother trying to work out whether they're good habits or bad habits at the moment. Just put them down and then ask these questions. Does this habit glorify God? Is it building up other Christians? Is it pointing people to Jesus? And when you're able to answer those questions, you're going to work out whether you need to change the habit or reinforce the habit, won't you? Godly faithfulness is, one, being transparent, and two, godly faithfulness is being dependable and at the same time, flexible, even if you find it hard to be flexible in your life. Three, godly faithfulness is being loving. I still find the definition of love that an old friend of mine who's gone to be with the Lord is gold. You ready for it? Love is an aggressive concern for the well-being of another person. Love is an aggressive concern for the well-being of another person. And when you analyse that definition, most of the songs I hear about love these days, I don't think fit that definition. Love becomes something that is very me-focused rather than other-focused. Being loving is actually tied to being transparent with others so that you can show them Jesus. Being loving means that you are dependable in... People know that if uh, you... Uh, they want to know they can go to you and hear the truth about Jesus and perhaps in relation to the truth about Jesus, the truth about themselves. And that can be very hard. It can be confronting. It can be... Um, a real challenge for some people. Being loving is tied to being dependable and flexible. And there are two examples of this in chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The first one starts off, um, it's, it gives an, another example, another insight into why Paul did not visit the Corinthians uh, when they thought that he should have been visiting. The previous visit in chapter 2, verse 1, was called a painful visit. And he knew that. He knew it was painful for them, and it was also painful for him, uh, which was also connected uh, to what some thought was a painful letter that he wrote sometime between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He obviously dealt with a painful issue, and he was not afraid of actually dealing with it, but he knew at that time that bringing more pain into their lives was not going to solve the problem. Some of you know, in a previous life, I used to be a nurse, and I remember one of the most uncomfortable moments that was a repeated thing 
in nursing when I was in a kid's ward at Parramatta Hospital was giving children injections. I'm actually choosing one of the, um, the easier things. There's much worse things that nurses can do to children that are painful, yeah. But that's the one that sticks out. And even though you, uh, in those days what you had to do is you had this little kidney dish and you had the syringe um, covered in the kidney dish with a, a little towel over it and you used to walk towards the patient and the kids knew what was underneath that. And they started screaming as soon as they saw you and they associated that kidney dish with pain. And you know what? I real, Honestly, I did not like inflicting pain on kids. Still don't. But they didn't know that. The younger the kids, they don't understand it. And they become terrified and they become angry and furious. And they'll throw things at you the next time that they see you. Because that's what kids are like. But for some kids, it's hard for them to see the difference between something that is meant to save them and something that is meant to hurt them. And that's true for some adults as well. And it's also true for some Christian adults as well. And that's why you're understanding now what's happening in the heart of the Apostle Paul, who's dealing with this issue in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, feel the pain that's here. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love that I have for you. He's being brutally honest with them, brutally loving with them, severely loving with them. And then Paul brings up an old issue that had been sort of partly resolved in verses 5 to 8. So that's the first thing, this, this pain issue with the church generally and their behaviour. And then in verse 5, he says, If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. Now, got to unpack that. That verse 6 is actually referring to something I think is back in his first letter that we've got preserved for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where there is a man in the Corinthian church who had a relationship with his father's wife. And it sort of leaves up the details about what that actually is. No one's really absolutely certain, but any scenario you can think of as I say that, it sounds wrong, doesn't it? And that's exactly what it is. Um, it was a, a, a wrong situation, and at that stage... Paul tells them in the uh, 1 Corinthians, look, you think somehow you're proud of that because you're, you're not doing anything about it. You're being cool. You know, you're not confronting him at all. You think you're being loving, but that's wrong. That's not loving him at all because he needs to know that if he continues along that road, he will be judged. So... Throw him out of the church. 
for his sake and your sake. Doesn't that sound hard? Boy, if that was said in some place, in some context, in some church today, do you think there might be some um, legal action? What happened somewhere between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they actually took what Paul said to heart. And they did expel, as Paul calls him, the immoral brother. And then something absolutely amazing happens. That man repents. And he wants to come back into the fellowship. But the church is uncomfortable about that. Not ready for that. Not ready to forgive. And that's where he says in verse 7, look, um, the punishment is is, uh, of the majority, the majority of the church, that's been sufficient. It's actually worked. In verse 7, as a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief and therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I can only imagine how hurt some of the people would be in that church, how they must have felt through that man's behaviour. That would have been so disintegrating to the, the fabric of their little community. And the ability for that church then To actually forgive could only begin to come from being aware of the grace of God that was put on them when God forgave them. Because there's no sin that you have committed against another person or another person has committed against you that is worse than the sin that you and I have committed in rejecting God, the Father, the Lord of the universe. The ability to forgive could only begin to come from being aware of the grace of God that was poured out on everyone who follows Jesus. That's their baseline. You've heard the expression, I can forgive, but I can't forget. Well, it's true Just because you forgive someone, it doesn't mean that God promises, okay, now that you've forgiven that person, I'll press this button in your psyche somewhere so that you'll have amnesia. That doesn't happen. But what it will mean is that it'll be an ongoing commitment to forgive that person and look for, well, having an aggressive concern for the well-being of that person, even though that they have hurt you deeply. The process might be slow and it might be shaky, but every process has a first step. Uh, Friends, I know that as I'm saying this, this could be pushing all sorts of buttons for you, emotional buttons. I don't know what your, your past is. I think most people have had at some stage someone that they have been hurt by and quite rightly by. And the whole idea of ever forgiving them is seems so remote, so impossible. But what we find in this passage is Paul is not telling them 
to forgive and forget. He says to forgive and comfort him. And as we learned last week, this comforting, it's not just a pat pat on the shoulder, but it's actually remembering what Jesus has done for him as well as for you. And then getting on. Um, this week, um, if you are in a growth group, I'm hoping that you'll actually look at that issue a bit more deeply as far as forgiveness goes. Because forgiveness becomes, in this section of 2 Corinthians, an acid test for love. And we've seen that the uh, third principle that we've looked at here is faithfulness, is, it is being loving. From a Bible definition of love. God is faithful. His children are called to be faithful. And as you hang around God, it will rub off. The Holy Spirit, who is in each converted person, is actively working towards you, becoming more Christ-like, which means he's working towards you, becoming a more forgiving person, so that other people can see Jesus more clearly. That's what being faithful looks like in the Christian life. Will we pray? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for reminding us the basis of forgiveness. Thank you that you are the God who is faithful. Help us become more and more like your son Jesus so we can make a difference. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.